Welcome, brothers and sisters in humanity. Welcome to the Sovereign Human Show. My name is George Hardwick, and every podcast of the Sovereign Human Show is dedicated to exploring how we as individuals and as a species can live more sovereign lives. How, in fact, we can create a world where we thrive because we are doing things that we love and therefore also having taken steps to establish our own sovereignty, we as a species are creating a planet where all beings, all animals, trees, birds, bees, seas, mountains can thrive too. And we live at a very particular juncture in the human story where despite dire warnings and very real considerations that need to be given the thought and time they deserve, we are heading at an accelerated pace towards a world where there will be more machines and gadgets on the planet than there are humans very soon. We are in the digital age and therefore we urgently need to address and understand and become wiser about how we exist in a digital world. And so in this episode, it was a real honour for me to sit with uh, a, a real mentor of mine, a real teacher of mine, uh, a gentleman called James Lavers, who, uh, for those of you who don't know, is known as the Lazy Coach. And he specialises in supporting people helpers. So that could be coaches, uh, speakers, consultants, you know, those who try to do their best to make people um, better in some way, allow people to share their gifts more effectively. And James's real gift is in supporting people to use the tools of the digital age to break free of the time for money trap. Um, but it goes much deeper than that. And in this episode, the thing that I perhaps am most excited about is that there are a few times where James was obviously engaging in new thinking. And this is always the intention of these podcasts, is to uh, do what the Rastafarians call reasoning, which is putting together two or more heads and hearts and souls, and hopefully arriving at truths that were not available to any of the individuals before the conversation took place. And... So in this, we really explore what it means to be sovereign in the digital age. And I really hope you enjoy the episode. Let's dive into this interview with James Lavers. So James, how are you, sir? How, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, George. I'm very well. I've had a, a nice sort of uh, chill day. And, uh, I did a video earlier and you came up in the conversation there. So it's nice to be talking to you finally. Fantastic. So I thought I would begin uh, with... A little gift for you. Um, I, you know, you, you were looking back in back to our days when we first met at the ICA, um, and I was looking back through some of my email correspondence when I think it would have been about three or four years later that I was like, "Who was that guy? Who was that guy who walked in and told me?" So this is this is how I met you. Told me to sit down, shut up, get a notebook and a pen because you were about to give me ten thousand pounds worth of information and knowledge and expertise. Um, that was how you entered the room um, when I first met James. And I would love to see, over the course of this conversation, how you feel you've grown as a person since then. Because <laughs> um, that is all about... I don't, start, I don't start my workshops like that anymore. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it, it had an impact because here we are having this conversation now, right? 
So, but from that, I, I then sought out, you know, your your help and support. And we then, you know, probably three or four years later, had a, a quick Skype call. And you were asking me, what, what were some of the things I wanted to do? And I said, well, let me just show you. So I actually dug that out. And uh, let's see if this rings familiar. I hope it's no crass inference to say that the guy behind mass influence is a dapper Dan, was a QVC anchor man, and is always a brilliant dad in a camper van. With a plan to help people help us build their tribe and make a living without giving in to the sleazy vibe. So if it's time to master your on-screen storytelling or be your authentic self and still be powerfully selling, if your soul's telling you it's time for you to have your own online course, then trust me, this labor's bloke is a tour de force. And because he does it all with such love and a gorgeous heart, he comes recommended by the likes of Daniel Priestley and Jamie Smart. Truly, he has perfected the art of being an awesome bloke. He is without doubt the world's greatest lazy coach. <laughs> that is just, I, it doesn't matter how many years go by, how, how do you even begin to start doing something like that? As I'm sure everyone's asked you, like, where do you even start in the thinking process? They're so wonderful. It's such a compliment to hear those things said back. And I'm really flattered. And I, I always get a mix of awe and discomfort because <laughs> I don't do too terribly well with um, compliments. Yes. You know, it's, it's been an area for me. But I... I I'm in awe of just the creative expression there. And how do you even, where do you even start with something like that? It's amazing. So there's a, there's a couple of places we can use from that to kind of jump into this. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the first is, how, how do I do that? And I'd love to know your journey with this. Because essentially, uh, you know, you're, you, one of the things I've noticed about you is you are, you've really done the study into how people can learn more effectively. And mm. so for me, the thing that I've found is when people go, oh, how do you do that? Well, actually, the truth is it's really easy because I was trying originally to do freestyle battle rapping, um, which is, of course, right. you have to do that over a beat to, to music in time and you still have to insult the person's mother. Um, so I had a really compressed like frame of learning. So when I now have minutes and minutes to you know, think of things, it, you know, I'm like, oh, man, this is, it's like doing it in slow motion on some levels. Um, wow. Whereas to others, it still seems really fast. Yes. So I, I was wondering if, if you, I mean, and I, I wonder, is your experiences with QVC, and perhaps you can share with our listeners a little bit about your background. Um, sure. W was that the kind of similar, like, compressed learning environment where you were able to see the stats live and stuff that actually gave you a level of mastery that others think is just mind-blowing? I think so. I think so. So for those people that don't know me who may watch this in the future or are watching with us now, the um, my genesis is I started out at 18 years old working for the UK's first live home shopping TV channel. And I went into that business with an inbuilt fascination. And the fascination was... How do you move people at a distance? How do you move somebody who's not in front of you? You know, how do you move somebody who you can't see face to face? You know, you don't, you don't even maybe know what they look like. How can you still move somebody like that? It came because I, I was talking to a client about this the other day, actually, George. I listened to 
um, do you remember Tony Robbins had this interview series many years ago called Power Talk? Yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah. And one of the power talks with, was with an American author and psychologist called um, Robert Cialdini, who wrote the book called Influence. And I was immediately in love with it. This was, I probably listened to this when I was 15, 16 years old. And I just, it, it entranced me and it is entranced, it continues to entrance me to this day. And in particular, for me, it was like, how do you move somebody when they're not in front of you? How can you, you know, I, I was born in the age of things like Live Aid. And I remember seeing that happen for the first time. Many of, you know, people that I imagine listen to this or will remember that. And I, I you know, I still remember Bob Geldof's impassioned plea where he was like, just send us your bloody money and all that. And all of those kind of things, when I see that happening, I get fascinated really mm. just it feels inherent, but it must come from somewhere. I don't know where it comes from. But so when I started at QVC, I immediately wanted to become a producer. It's why I said about your producer in the studio there, always listen to the producer. That's what I always wanted when I was producing TV. And the wonderful thing about working at QVC, the shopping channel was unlike, like I've worked at the BBC as well in my time. And there everything was about the audience figures, like how many people were watching. And I never cared about how many people were watching. I cared what were those people that were watching doing? What were they doing? That was the thing that fascinated me. That was what I wanted to know. And that's what I wanted to control. Um, um, you know, when you talk about power and control, it's very easy to think in terms of it being used unethically. But I was always interested in power and control from an ethical standpoint and helping people to make decisions that they want to make, you know, helping people more quickly I think if many of us, many of the challenges I see people have, I'm sorry to segue all around here, but I think many of the challenges that people have are challenges of decision making, really. So they go, well, I've got this problem. And it's like, well, that's not the problem. The problem is you haven't yet come to terms with the decision mm. that you want to make, you know. So I liked, I liked helping people make decisions. And in the case of QVC, that was to buy stuff, <laughs> everything from a, a food processor to a fake diamond to a big green clean machine to an ab cruncher you know a lot of it was tapped and a lot of it was some quite good product but so i did that for many years on tv and i was fascinated about what we could say what we could do on camera and what i could orchestrate and and help influence a presenter to do because i could speak to them you know through a microphone i could tell the presenter what to say and of course i had this screen in the in the gallery at qvc that showed me what was happening on the phone lines and it was like a an ECG machine that was going like this, up and down, up and down. And, you know, the presenter would say something and I'd see it go, bup, 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 people were buying. Wow. And I'd be fascinated, like, what made people pick up the phone then? What made people do this? And so I did that for many years and I was pretty good at it. I think not because I have any inherent talent, but just because I was fascinated by it. I just loved it. Um, I just, I got a thrill unlike anything else when I saw that, something that I could spot that I knew would be likely to sell that product, I could prompt a presenter to say it on air and we would see people buying, you know. And in 2003, I had a chance opportunity to work with, with Tony Robbins, who we've already mentioned, who's, for those people that don't know, is, you know, one of the world's biggest self-improvement, motivational kind of gurus, really. <clears throat> and um, I got a chance to actually work with him and help him and he had helped me as a teenager because I bought a tape set of him. Actually, I was gifted a, a tape set of his that helped me with my blushing. I had terrible blushing, George, right? And um, 
I got this chance at QVC as a producer because I worked my way up. I became the producer and I got a chance to work with Tony Robbins and I helped him. I only had eight minutes to talk to the man, but I helped him more than double his sales, average of his sales, mm -hmm. which was really nice. That was really good. And there was something that happened around then, I would say, that segued me to go, actually, maybe it's possible to use this talent of helping people buy stuff. What if I could help people who are like coaches, authors and speakers and advice experts doing good work? You know, yeah. people who want to spread their good work. What if I could help them affect their audiences better and move their audiences? So really, I'm in the business of moving people. So when it, you know, when it comes down to, you know, what, that's a little bit about my background. Mm. I've been online helping people like us for 15 years now. And I think <laughs> there was a question in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, no, but, so, so, so I, it's amazing because what I was asking was, did you have a similar kind of compressed learning experience that allowed you to now do what you do yeah. really well? And if you're able yeah. to help Tony Robbins double his sales in eight minutes, the answer is probably yes. And, uh, <laughs> and what I'm hearing is when one of the core elements of being able to practice well, of being able to master your craft, um, is being able to get immediate feedback on whether what you're doing is effective. And yeah, with your little ECG yeah. machine I'm hearing there, real you, time. you had that. So you were just, time. every day you were layering in this knowledge of how yeah. to make the ECG machine go crazy with sales. 100%. Nice. Yeah, which, which a lot of like, say, I see people online and they will get the courage up if they're a new startup company. They may be, have a huge build up to making their first offer online. And then they'll get some feedback and that feedback loop might be like a month or it might be weeks. Um, whereas you're absolutely right at QVC, we would be selling hundreds of products every day or certainly dozens and dozens of products every single day. And I did that year in, year out. Um, you're seeing tens of thousands of products. You're seeing real time what works to sell that. Um, there's nothing like it. There's nothing, I think, the closer. That's what I'm trying to get everyone to, I think, all of my clients. At some level, I think I'm trying to get them to that place where there's a feedback with your audience, you know? So you're, like, you must have that when you're doing your raps and you can see how people are responding and you can, or, I mean, I can't even imagine the battle rap thing, but I mean, that must be so real time and your brain's firing off yeah. so quickly. You know, and it's, there's nothing like real time feed forward feedback, feed forward that just makes me feel alive, quite honestly. Mm. It makes me feel alive. I love it. Fantastic. So that's, that is, uh, really, really powerful to hear. So, uh, folks, if you have just joined the Zoom, so we have by the miracle of technology, if you have just joined the Zoom, can you mute your microphone, please? That would be fantastic. If you can mute your microphone, that would be amazing. Um, let me just do that. So most of them are muted. <laughs> awesome. I think we're all muted now. Perfect. Good. So the other thing I really want to do, James, is to actually honor you. Um, honor you for, for being here, having this conversation. Because from what I can understand about, you know, you've had this challenge with blushing. Uh, as you said, you've also has given voice to the fact that you find it a challenge to take compliments. And if I recall rightly from some of the training I've attended with you, actually, this isn't really your comfort zone. Like from what I remember, you're, you, if, I, if I remember right, you're, you're a bit of an introvert. So yeah. being here in front of a crowd, you know, we, we got three or four people on the call um, and however many else will listen to it. Thank you. You know, thank you for, <laughs> thank you for stepping you're out welcome. of your comfort thank zone. You. I really, I really appreciate that. And well, I, 
I think I'm more comfortable, George. Being, I, I thank you for the for the facts, and I appreciate that, and I'll do my best to receive that. I think I actually find it much more comfortable being on camera. This is why some people go, "Are you mad?" I'm I'm more comfortable being on camera. I'm more comfortable communicating at a distance, funnily enough, than I probably am face to face. So, one of the things I'd love to dig into is uh, you said that when you've been helping clients to make those decisions. Um, that on some level they already want to make. What I hear is, but you said the problem isn't the problem. So I also heard you say the other day that um, <coughs> when you support clients with your coaching, you help them understand what's the thing behind the thing. And in some of the work that uh, you know I do both in my day-to-day -day life supporting young people and uh, some of the volunteer work I do with you know young men in crisis, mentoring them, um, very often it, you know they think, oh, the problem is this person's, you know, not read my message or whatever, but actually there's a deep-seated abandonment wound from way back in the day sort of thing. So mm -hmm. I guess what I'd love to hear is what what that thing of what's the thing behind the thing, what that means for you and how you use it in your work to support people to, to make an impact. Yeah, I think it's complex, you know. I mean, I've been coaching now and consulting with people like us brilliant creatives and entrepreneurs with a message for getting on nearly 20 years now. And I feel like I'm only just starting to learn this. So I want to make it clear. I'm not coming from a place of like, ah, 20 years, I've seen it all. Actually, I found the more years that I do this, the less I know, the more I find that actually there's a hell of a lot that I don't really know that's going on. But to the best of my ability, I find that people making decisions the first question I often ask a client, and maybe people listening to this might like to try this on as well, is when they'll often come to me with a desire. That's what oftentimes why people will hire a coach or even a trainer to a certain extent, but um, a consultant, an advisor, and a mentor. It's like, I want something, right? So I want this thing. And oftentimes my first question is like, why haven't you already got it? You know, like, why is that not already a reality for you? And that's when I listen really closely. Now, traditional coaching would have you say, when somebody says they want something, you'd say, um, you know, what would it mean to you if you got it? And you'd, you'd stack all this kind of like, um, uh, you know, like, well, what would be a first thing you could do in that direction and all those kind of things. Whereas what I want to identify, George, with a client is what's the friction that's in the way? I think that we humans are really good at having stories and dragging around baggage. And I feel like if I can identify somebody's friction, if we can release the friction first, well, let me give you a little, I'll give you a little metaphor that will make this make more sense. <clears throat> if, if we, you and I put on diver suits now and went underwater okay. and we yeah. had a football and I tried yeah, to kick the football to you underwater, I could, I could give that football. Are you still there, John? Oh, yeah, you're great. Yeah. Um, I could kick that football as hard as I could. Like if I, if I kicked it full force and you were like 20 yards away from me, it doesn't matter how much intention, it doesn't matter how well meaning I am. It doesn't matter how motivated, it doesn't matter how strong I am. It's highly unlikely that football will get to you. Um, and it's not because of me. It's not because of how motivated I am and how much energy I've got. It's actually to do with the friction that's in the way that I can't see because we can see through water, right? So I'd be like, why isn't it getting to you? 
And that's how a lot of people operate, I find. I've, and this has literally just come through experience, is that a lot of people are kicking footballs underwater. So they're like trying to get, they have a goal in mind, you know, point A to point B, and that's their goal. And they're trying to kick a football underwater and they're going, why am I not achieving my aims? And you take you and me and you put us in space suits, right? And you put us up in space. And I try and just tap that ball to you. All I need to do is just go, pam, and it will go straight to you. Why? Because there's no friction, yeah. right? There's nothing in the way to block it. So actually it gets to, you know, you, you travel to target, you, you meet your goal. And I found that working with clients, that's often the first place is I want to identify what's the friction that's in the way first. So when somebody says to me, James, I really want to have, um, you know, I really want to have some online products and programs and services that I can sell around the world. My company, Lazy Coach, we sell online courses, as you thankfully included in your wrap, yeah. the, you know, that we sell in 143 countries around the world. We've got customers in 143 countries. I've been to like 10 countries in my life. So it's like blows my mind. It's just such a gift. It really is. But when I'm, so when I'm working with somebody, and they say, oh, I want to make a, a course or a product. And I go, why haven't you already? That's what I want to know first. Before I go, great, let's start, which is what most people do. Most people are like, okay, first thing, what are you going to do the course about? Second thing, how long are you going to do it over? You know, that bit's easy. Yeah. Except if you've got a bunch of friction. Because, mm -hmm. and I learned this, George, by terrible mistakes. Like I would teach stuff and I would teach people exactly how to do a course. And then I would find that nobody would do a course. And I'd be like, it's not my, like the things I'm asking people to do, I know they work, right? So there must be something else going on here. There must be some friction. There must be something where people are doing the instructions, they're kicking the football, but it's just not getting there. So the thing behind the thing when I talk about that is like, tell me the story. I want to know the story. I want to know like, if you want to make an online program or if you want to write a book or if you want to do a TED talk or if you want to, you know, publish a blog about your favorite subject matter or whatever it might be, why haven't you already? And I think a lot of humans get defensive at that. You know, they immediately start to go, well, I just, and I'm like, no, don't be defensive. It's whatever comes out, whatever you tell me, this is the real, this mm. is the water that's getting in the way. This is the friction. So that's what I mean when I talk about the thing behind the thing. Amazing. And so to to deepen that metaphor, shall we say, do, do you find that um, you will almost kind of go through a few layers of the thing behind the thing, as in they'll give you some stuff of what it seems to be. And, and then there's still the friction is still there, but perhaps to a lesser extent. And have you found, does it come down to some kind of core emotional elements or can it be a whole series of things? It, I found that it could be a, a series of things. Usually, a typical thing that a lot of people, I haven't given this a lot of thought past you asking me now yeah. because somebody hasn't asked me with that much nuance what's really going on. What I have found and what I think is at least part is that people, <clears throat> excuse me, we humans like to have scapegoats mm. or a, 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 another way of thinking that is crutches. Things we can blame <laughs> in instance of failure or something not working or we get embarrassed or you know something goes wrong we like to have things ready on standby to blame and i actually find that this kind of goes on at the unconscious level but people will build a story that they can fall back on yeah. right 
So I'll give you a quick example. Sometimes, and by the way, what I'm about to cite doesn't have anything to do with my compassion for people, but it's a, it's a, hopefully a good example. I might say to somebody, so why haven't you already? They'll say, James, I want to work with you because I really want to have a, um, I really want to write a book. And I'll say, well, why haven't you already? And they'll go, you know, they'll get defensive and that's okay. That's beautiful. That's normal. That's human. And I'll just say, it's okay. Like, I'm not going to make you wrong. I just want to hear what are your reasons for not having already done this? <clears throat> and they might say to me, um, well, I've been ill, actually. I've had, um, you know, I've been, I've been really ill recently. What they're really telling me when they tell me those things, uh, they're showing me their crutches. You know, they're showing me the things they've got on standby that are kind of like their get out clauses. And I also think if we can, if we can release our get out clauses, it's like, it's like taking that football into space. The friction goes, you know, if we could, if we could see those things for what they are and release them. And I think there is some emotion in that. You know, you talked about, is there emotional issues with that? Yeah. You know, there really can be a case of like, actually, you are helping somebody to re, if you helping somebody to see that they have, they've got this big cauldron of ready excuses waiting to pull them out to mitigate against failure and about and mitigate against getting it wrong. If you could show somebody that, that could be a really emotional thing for them to see. Mm, yeah. So I would say in answer to your question, yeah, there can be some root emotions in there that, that they, that actually if they were to remove the friction, they couldn't avoid those things anymore. Amazing. Does that so, make sense? It, yes, it absolutely does. And it, it leads me to another question. So, cause one of the, the metaphors that I've used to explain sovereignty to people, um, is, yeah. you know, essentially how can we be the most authentic versions of ourselves? Um, able to use our gifts and talents to help the gifts and talents of others shine. That's, you know, that's essentially, what sovereignty as i understand it is all about and there's there's two elements or you know or i've used a metaphor of kind of two wings that really the journey of coming into sovereignty is about understanding how we have been our brokenness how we have been hurt and how that pain still is playing out in our lives in the coping mechanisms we use to avoid it but the other one that's a lot less kind of given airtime is our brilliance. So we have our brokenness and our brilliance. And the one that people very often run from more than actually some of this painful stuff is how brilliant they could be. So I guess I wondered in, in you removing those crutches and supporting people to kind of see their stories, do, do those kind of, do those two elements resonate? They're sometimes avoiding pain, but very often they're also avoiding how brilliant they could be. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I really like, I really like the simplicity of what you just shared there because, <clears throat> yeah, I think it does come down to often you mentioned earlier, you know, stuff from childhood and, you know, we learn to accumulate these broken stories, as you would say, you know, these broken tales, you know, like, well, oh, this happened or that, or I've been ill or that. And it's like, I think they're all valid. Like I don't, I don't invalidate them. I go, that's cool. And it's a story. And I think with any story, you can choose to use it or you can, you can, you can honor it and say, not today, baby, you yeah. know, <laughs> and it's sort of, so yeah, I think that's a really nice thing. And there's definitely, um, you know, there's definitely an element to the kind of the brilliance being if too many people doubt their brilliance. This is the problem. I, 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 it, it generally, 
and genuinely breaks my heart mm. how many people um, I was just speaking to a client of mine this morning uh, Deb if you're watching this hey how you doing um, who is the most amazing raw chef she works with royalty and with Russian supermodels and uh, uh, actors and actresses and uh, people want to fly her out to you know places to train their chefs wow. this woman works only with raw food she's a just a genius and she doubts herself so much you know that and it's and it's so believing our brilliance i think is the thing yeah. is taking a chance on it we would take a chance on I, i'd love to see human beings more and i think it's something i try to do with my clients is to really have them take a chance on their own as you would call it their brilliance you know their genius is like do you know what take a chance on it like let it let it let it ride you to where you want to go you know mm. and i think i think it's such a lovely way of thinking about things yeah nice so the, the, that kind of opens up where where we can kind of head um that i'm fascinated about um i wonder to what extent you know that people not believing in their brilliance is because of the condition they've received you know the yes shit might have happened traumatic stuff might have happened for sure there's also the kind of the 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 the, the what is it the nature and the nurture the nurture element the societal conditioning, and I know that you're quite big on um, industrial age attitudes, and so mm. I'd I'd love to get a sense from you of what you you know what do you mean when you talk about industrial age attitudes, and yeah. then I wonder is there any element of those industrial age attitudes conditioning us to kind of squash our brilliance down? No, hundred percent, hundred percent. Hundred percent. I'll, I'll happily talk about this all night. <laughs> I don't know how long this show is, but like, I'd happily talk about this all day long because it's part of my bigger vision. Uh, the bigger reason, really, why I think I'm on the planet is to sort of help people undo the cultural, the 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 uh, generational baggage yeah. that yeah. is handed down from about the last three hundred years. Um, well, firstly, I would say I think the big place it happens is school. That's it just period and, and there are brilliant teachers in this world and i i had we all remember the one you know the one or two teachers yes. that really nurtured us really so what i'm about to say is not a scathing indictment on teachers because i think teachers do an important and wonderful job but rather the system the structure behind yeah, that and absolutely. what drives it and how it's organized is you know school um wiser men than me have and women have talked about how, you know, schools were brought in as a, a kind of a way to get the kids off the street because the parents were no longer working on their own farmsteads or, you know, in the local farmsteads, but they were going to another place. They were going usually to factory work or to some kind of intense mass labor. And they was like, what, what do we do with all these children? Well, we'll put them in factories where they can learn and yes. respond to bells, things like that, you know, and, um, I, I also think, think back to how we learnt as infants. I often talk about this, George, in as much as like, I encourage my clients to learn the way they learnt as infants, which is, <clears throat> and I think really at the end of the day, there's only two types of learning. And this is a huge thing that if we could fix this, this alone would make a massive difference, is when we were infants, how did we learn? We, uh, when we learned probably the most in the first few years of life. We watched a little bit and then we did a little bit. We watched a little bit. We didn't overthink it. We didn't go write stuff down. We didn't go read books about it. We just watched and then we had a go. And then we'd watch a bit more and we'd have a bit more of a go. And it's like I saw 
both my children walk that way, you know, by watching me strut around, have a look, go, why is everyone else up? I'll, I think I'll have a go at that. And within such a short period of time, they went from no walking, no reference for walking, to walking. Same with talking. I'll have a go. I'll say a noise. And, oh, look, Dad looks happy. That's brilliant. I'll do that again. Yeah. And it's like we watched a little bit. We did a little bit. Then when we, so I call that sort of action oriented learning. It's, it's, it's learning through doing. Do you know what I mean? Like learning through doing rather than learning through acquisition of more and more knowledge, which is what happens when we go to school. Now I think of school as like the, and this is the other main learning style is academic type of learning, which has its value. You know, like if you're a surgeon or you're in a top accountant or a lawyer, um, yeah, you, you, for sure. You don't want to learn while doing no, it. It's like, oh, I, I, I'm a brain surgeon. I kind of want him to have studied or her to have studied, right? Right, right, right. So I, I want to make it clear. There are obviously places where academic learning is really vital, like where actually you have to demonstrate a critical mass of knowledge and capability before you do. But it's actually, for most of us, especially small business startups, entrepreneurial thought leaders, creatives, we, I want to get us more back to learning by doing. Yep. And so that's the biggest single thing to, to answer your question. I mean, there's a lot that the industrial revolution messed up for a lot of us, I, I believe. One of the biggest ones was the introduction of not schools per se, but the school system, the method is like learning, you know, wrote, le you know, learning, memorizing, repeating, you know, tests, yep. scores, and everything changed then because do you know what? Even when you failed when you're an infant, your parents, I don't care, most parents were, were applauding, cheering you on when you fell over, you know, and when you did anything, they were like, yeah, you put food all over your face when you're trying to feed yourself, but they weren't like, oh, well, that's it. Yeah. You don't, you need to go read some books on feeding yourself, my son. You know, it's like, I want us to go back to that style of learning because at school we learn. <clears throat> You, you don't know enough yet or you haven't demonstrated you, you know enough. Not that you can do enough, but you haven't demonstrated that you know enough. So do the test, mark the test, get them right. And it becomes an approval system. Mm. The Industrial Revolution is to blame for that. Fact. Like, that's when it came in. Before that, there weren't those kind of schools. Um, it, I understand why they thought to do it, because where do we put all these children? But it, it has a lot to answer for. So yeah. that, that's fascinating. I, I, as you say that, I, I get this kind of flash of, you know, we have this essentially Victorian approval system that we've all been conditioned in. Totally. And, and then we wonder why the dark side of the internet is everybody <laughs> posting up their bum to get liked by, essentially to get approval. Um, so we, we have this incredible tool that can connect people. And as you say, 143 countries, you have people who you're helping. Um, my, my brother Harry, I think, is, is watching this and he's, he runs a big football company. In something like 180 countries, they've got footballers that they're helping. It's amazing. Um, and yet, so many of us are posting up cat pictures for getting likes. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, uh, so I wonder, and I heard Joe Rogan talk about this very often. I know you, you, you have listened yeah. to his podcast as well. He talks about us really being a kind of in an infancy or adolescence with this digital age, with social media particularly. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if we recognize some of the issues around the kind of industrial age and its conditioning. What's, what's its counterpoint? What's, what's, what's your understanding of the kind of more digital age? Uh, and if, is that, is that the term yeah. you use? 
Yeah, well, I think of it as I think there's a there's a, a, a kind of a maturity that can be that can be achieved with the digital age because I think there's a lot of fear with digital, like that even with the person we just mentioned with Rogan's podcast. You know, Joe will talk with a great amount of fear about AI and it's going to take over the world or the robots are going to kill us and stuff like that. I don't believe that's going to happen. I think, I think digital maturity is a worthy aim, at least for the short term, for like the next 50 years. Digital maturity is a worthy aim to help us surpass the baggage. And I mean, I haven't even begun. I don't want to use this forum, obviously, to rant more about the industrial revolution, but I think the digital age and us maturing into the digital age will help us to surpass a lot of that baggage if, if we if we embrace it. Just just to clarify, what what do you consider to be what does digital maturity look like? If you can, you know, even even give an idea of that. Yeah, well, effectively, what the internet predominantly right. I mean, there's other things outside. There's other tech, but when we look at the internet, how it connects us all, <clears throat> what it does ostensibly it gives us an opportunity to clone ourselves you know we're doing this now live but this video can help people when we hang up tonight and i go to bed and you go to bed Uh, this video can still be out there working for us and we didn't really we, we didn't have that in the industrial revolution what we had was you would go and you would you know work a machine for the day and make pins and you'd go home knackered and you wouldn't see your family and then you get up early and if, and you get paid for that day. And if you wanted to go get paid again, you'd have to go into work and make more pins. And it's, <clears throat> we're still operating under that, those industrial premises of like hard work is good. Being busy is good. Mm. If I talk a lot and it makes a lot of people uncomfortable and it's probably one of the reasons why I'm not <laughs> as popular as I'd quite like. That could just be my friction. Yeah. But the, the idea is I'm, the reason I call my business lazy coaches is not about being idle. It's not about being a slacker. It's about efficiency and it's about digital maturity, which is we, it's not that I don't think hard work can be, can feel good. It's that I don't think it's necessary anymore. Yeah. And the, most the, the time for money trap as well, which is another one, which because we can clone ourselves, suddenly there's, there could be millions of us, i.e. millions of episodes of this podcast being listened to, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Each of those is doing some work for us on, so, so we don't yeah. have that same time for money trap. Yeah. And the busyness things, people get so addicted to busy and they feel worthy when they're busy. And it's like, it's an industrial age hangover. It's an industrial age hangover where actually you were ostracized from your community during the industrial revolution if you didn't work mm. because you, you wouldn't feed your family. You, by default, you wouldn't be able to feed your family if you weren't busy. So, and so we've got generations and generations of, of that idea being being solidified in us. And l- 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 to, to make this practical, though, I you know, because I get some people calling me on that and going, hang on a minute, James. What about, you know, I work checkout at, um, you know, a big supermarket. How can I change the time for money trap? And I go, no, you're quite right. And your job at the moment does demand hours and you've got to be there. And if you want to get paid, you've got to be there. But I bet you there's something that that person knows. You might have a great cupcake recipe. I often say this. You might have a particular, you, have you got a hobby or something that you're fascinated or something you're good at? Maybe you can cook a great apple pie. It doesn't matter. We're now in an age where you can share that with people around the world. You can record yourself or you can, like we are, stream yourself sharing that. And 
in effect, I'm not saying it's as easy as I'm making out here because obviously we're in an interview. I'm not sort of like teaching, but um, you could monetize that. Yeah. You could monetize if you have anything that you do that other people would like to know how to do, no matter how humble or highfalutin. Um, you can monetize that. There are people who are looking for those kind of things online. So I'm not saying it's instant. When I went from working a kind of a day job as a producer at QVC to transitioning to doing my business, there was a transition period where, and there was a point where I was doing both, but I did transition. I did start to digitize my expertise, get it online. And now there are people buying my courses. And some of these courses are courses that I made years ago. And people are still happily paying money for them and enjoying them and getting results for them um, for work I did a long time ago. That's what I think is the promise of the digital age, George. Mm. I really like that. And as, 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 as you say that, what's, what's clear is that it's not uh, an instant, you know, you've, you've monetized your thing and you're sorted for life. It's because you've been yeah. doing this for 20 years now. And yeah. the, you know, you know, it's been a, a real gift for me to see you grow. And the truth is the amount of amazing free knowledge you put out there, like if anyone's deserved to be in the position you're in, like, trust me, it's you because, you know, oh, even, okay. even some of my friends will be like, oh, do you see James's latest thing? You know, that they, they recognize that you've, for me, have really nailed that balance between, um, being of service and being fairly rewarded for that service. Um, so, you know, I've, you know, this, I've gladly snapped up a few of your courses because I could see it would fill a need that I had and it was a fair price to pay. Great. You know, like we're, everyone's happy. But you've done it over a number of years. Um, and yeah. so the image I had was, as you know, you said you've got these courses <coughs> that have, you recorded years ago that are still bringing you, you know, getting results for people. It's almost like each course you do, you know, and this each little product you put together, the image that came to mind was like the, the growth rings on a tree. And, you know, you are one of the more mature, majestic oak trees in the digital space, shall we say? Um, you know, it, if we have all, if we've all in the internet started as, you know, as little saplings, Amazon is like the, the avatar giant home tree. Um, and, you know, you've got, we've got three or four giant, uh, giant trees, but, you know, there are some yourself. I'll take solid oak. I'll yeah, 100%. You know, yourself, you know, your Daniel Priestley's, you know, these, these guys who have really kind of seen the opportunity early and really been of service early as well. That's the, that's the thing that for yeah. me is standing out among those who I see as being, you know, really taking those steps towards digital maturity is the ones who really early on clocked that for longevity, it's about being of service as well. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I always, I mean, my partner, Kat, who in her own right, um, most amazing woman, she's taught me so much of the wisdom that I now pass off as my own. Um, and in her own field, we have, we work in similar fields. Um, she's much more about helping women to, 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 to tap into their intuition. And, you know, one of the things that she always said to me was, you know, sales is service and service is sales and i really like that because i think sometimes people draw a you know put a wedge between the two but if we see sales as helping somebody to make a decision you know to really make a decision in their own best interest that that requires a commitment right a commitment of an investment into a new standard mm. right for yourself which is what anyone like say for example that's hires me or buys a course of mine that's what inherently they're doing is what I'm asking them to do and what they are agreeing to do when they buy from me is to step into a new space, into a new standard for themselves in a particular area. And, um, that's 
So for me, when I hear you say service, that goes hand in hand with sales, you know, and I think it can be what well, everything I've known about people like you've mentioned Daniel Priestley a few times who I consider, a, you know, a pretty good friend and somebody I've had the good fortune to speak on his stages and he's spoken on my stages in the past and, um, you know, just a, a wonder, a true entrepreneur. I don't, uh, whereas I think I kind of could just about getting, get away with calling myself an entrepreneur. There's a, there's a true entrepreneur. Mm. And, um, when I see the, 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 that dedication to service, it doesn't mean, I think a lot of people, George, think that when it means service, it means I have to do this thing where I just do a lot of free stuff for people and then hopefully that buys me permission to ask them to buy something. And I'm like, uh-uh, it's not that. I'm saying, if you, if you want to be of service today, you sell today because there is somebody out there that needs what you've got. And I don't care whether it's a great apple pie recipe or a technique for how you clean your car or you have a, a way for me to get a six pack of abs in three days, which I'm buying that. Yeah, hundred percent. That comes out. But like, it doesn't matter what it is you have or a particular technique for dribbling a football in your brother's case, right? Or whatever it might be. Like, you are of service when you offer something that is designed to help somebody from that pure intention. And so I always say, because I think it's important to say that because when you when people say service and when people look around online at what people are doing, it looks like it means you have to put in the time just giving away free and nothing else. And it's like, I do give a lot of, away a lot of free. I'm probably one of the most prolific people in my industry in terms of the, the, the raw quantity of content I put out there. But I'm selling just as much, if not more. Yeah. And it's like, and I consider that selling to be of service as well. You know, nice. And I really, I really love that. That particularly the fact that, and I guess you had a good training in being able to kind of embody that in your yeah. QVC days. But for you, there's just yeah. there's no, there, there's no, um, oh, what's the word? There's no, there, there's no friction when you say, you know, I'm really happy with selling. Uh, you, you know, and it's yeah. just, and I think that's that's actually what if I'm guessing is gives people the confidence to buy with you because I hope so. Yeah. Hope you know, so. there's, there's no, like suddenly I'm you go into selling mode and that's something I've really noticed. Um, <coughs> I, lo I love your other one, which is like, rather than me sell you this, let me just tell you about it. <laughs> Essentially, I'm going to sell it to you. Um, it's, but, but you do it like that's the thing is there's an authenticity to it. And that's, so I think yeah. that's if we began this with a discussion of digital maturity. And so I wonder is, is that perhaps also a, one of the hallmarks of digital maturity is, uh, an ever-increasing ability to be authentic with oneself online. Yeah, I think, I, funny enough, I spoke about this in a video I did today, a free video that I did today, but it was about being authentic and what is that. And I think a lot of people, I think there's a lot of confusion at the moment because I don't think people know how to be authentic. Mm. And I think I saw, uh, having started online in 2005 and worked prior to that offline, I saw when the word authentic came in, you know, became like this thing that people would talk about and authenticity. And it's like authenticity, it's very hard to say what it is, but everybody can tell you when they think they're seeing it. This is the interesting thing yeah. about it. They could be like him or her or that group or that. And it's like, you, we know when we feel it. And, um, I think the worst thing people, I think the worst advice some people can get is be yourself. Um, which is how I think a lot of people interpret being authentic is just be yourself. And it's like, well, 
what does that even mean? Like, there are so many sides to me. I'm sure there's so many sides to you, George. And it's like, would you want to see angry father now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> would that be being authentic mm. about if I show you that? Um, I think, I think we have to recognize and the, 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 we are in an age where people are looking for something that feels, they're looking to communicate and connect in a way that feels meaningful to them, that feels meaningful and that feels authentic. And I don't think that means just let it hang out. Like I am over to articulating on this interview. Like if I just spoke, oh, I normally spoke and I kind of mm. like, if everybody watching this now just sits the way they normally sit when they're sitting around the house, I'd be like this. I'd be talking to you like this, much less animated and everything. So of course I turn it on. Is that mm. like I'm turning on my energy and I want to be fully present and feel very much alive. <clears throat> that doesn't make me less authentic because I'm not just being relaxed and normal. So <clears throat> I think what we need, and I think I take it, I take this duty on at least in part is to help people understand what being authentic is and I actually think it's less to do with what it is. I think it's, you have to do, it goes back to what I said about teaching the baby to walk is like, you have to watch a little bit and do a little bit. Like I only arrived at the authenticity that I'm very thankful that a lot of people seem to perceive I have, but I only arrived at that by copying a bunch of people, realizing that, <laughs> that didn't feel good, then trying and being just let it all hang out and I don't care and realizing I didn't like that and then trying to, and it's almost like giving your permission, permission to make mistakes on your road to mm. finding authenticity yeah. is a must. Yeah. You, to, to just say, I'll just be myself ain't yeah. going to cut it. You've got to, you've got to be willing to, to, to push those limits a little bit, I think. Mm. And I love how that brings some of the strands together of the conversation as well. You know, you've, you've got to be willing to try it and for it not to work just in the same way as the baby will fall over and go, Oh, right. Well, that didn't work. Let me try again. Um, and it's, you know, we talked about the industrial age attitudes. Our Victorian schooling system doesn't like failure is not an option. It's like if you if you don't get the exam right, you're a failure. You grades. know, it's so. Um, so I love that. I love that the fact that actually, you know, we can we can learn to become an authentic version of ourselves. And version is is a key word there. Actually, me doing the show is like as you say, very different to the person I am. You know, if I'm maybe sat listening to a young person who's got terrible anxiety and is looking at me like that, you know, through their hands, wow, you know, I'm going to need yeah. to soften a lot there, you know. So, um, I, yeah, I love the way that ties together the strands. So, <coughs> excuse me, how how long, what's, what, what what are your timings like? Um, because we there's no one in the studio after this, so there's one other area I'd love to cover if, you, if you've got enough time. I'm really, really good. I'm, I'm having such a lovely time and awesome. I really appreciate you inviting me along. So I'm good. If I, as long as I can get to bed by about one, I'm happy. All right. Well, that's, that's good. I mean, you said you can talk about the industrial age stuff, you know, all, all, all night, and, and really, I could as well. Um, so in the in the um, in the assume I'm not on a timeline. Yeah. So I'll go until your first yawn. Right. So one of the uh, one of the things I, I loved in the, the 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 book that you actually you know were in, an interviewee for, uh, so my book Creative Uprising, was I spoke about what I saw as a shift from this age of reductionist materialism. Um, which essentially has seen the planet as an object to be plundered and humans as, you know, essentially resources to be worked, um, shifting to more of a, for want of a better word, kind of, you know, something that was a bit more heart-based. You know, the, the, the industrial age was very much the product of the mind, of a strategy and a tactic to maximize efficiency <laughs> and effectiveness. 
And as I speak now, what I ponder is whether actually that digital maturity is the journey from the head to the heart of being able to show up from a heart-based place. Um, and that's something that I wonder whether, you know, you mentioned Kat earlier. And I, I do feel like there's been a real, like, I feel like you're, you're, the way you land through the screen and, you know, it seems to have gone through the roof, right? And so it seems like you, you've almost really come to a place of deeper acceptance and love for yourself over the last few years. And I don't know if that's true, yeah. but I'd love yeah, to get your take yeah. on it because that's been my perception of it. Yeah, I, w I would agree wholeheartedly that, uh, and it's interesting just to sort of, to answer this and to finish off what we were talking about, about authenticity. It's like, I think sometimes I think you can only arrive at authenticity by, by faking it, by hmm. being a dick, by manufacturing it, by like, you have to do that first. Like, I almost feel like I've, I've done the, slightly deceptive look at my successful life type of stuff right mm. uh, yeah i've been online before facebook and youtube yeah. like i've seen it all come and go i've seen the advent of social media and this kind of oh you can perception is reality yeah. you can you can present yourself in any way and people will believe it you know when, when i first met when i first met you you had this sit down shut up i'm going to give you 10 grand's worth of you know expertise yeah. I remember yeah. also seeing you on stage dressed in your pajamas. Um, so I wonder, yeah. was, were all of those elements of you testing out this? I think so. I think so. Well, I think the person that came into that room in like, that must have been 2005, 2006. Yeah. Like, it seems like it was a long time ago. And I feel like, well, that person was, was terrified. Mm. And in, on reflection, I remember feeling like, you know, because the ICA, um, for those that don't know, the Institute of Contemporary Arts, is quite a, respectable highbrow organization in the UK. You know, it's something that they've been on the cutting edge of some quite groundbreaking ideas for society and for creatives and for entrepreneurs and for the arts as well. And I think I was probably terrified. In fact, I know I was terrified going into that because of worthiness and wondering whether, like, who on earth would book me to come and do this mm. I'm, a, I'm an infomercial producer yeah like what on earth are they thinking but the, a, a woman had heard me the woman that managed and I, I forget her name um that managed this program um had seen me do a video online and just said i'd love to talk to you about this thing we were doing but i think yeah the person that comes in and says you know shut up i'm going to give you 10 grand and all of that like i think i was probably completely shit scared you know yeah. and i um uh, it, sorry there was a thing under that in terms of like the journey yeah <coughs> you took a couple exercised my demons mm. as it were and my vulnerability through the work you know it's helped and and also as i've shed my industrial baggage you know it's it's really helped me to 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 sort of get past things and i think i'm now at a place of of where i'm i suppose when people this is the thing i think when people say oh you seem so real and authentic james i say thank you but it's only because i'm accepting myself more mm. really i mean that's at the heart of it i think i hadn't really thought about it until you just sort of roused it which i appreciate very much but i think if if my authenticity is down to anything it's that i have i have tried not to be me in so many different ways 
Mm. None of them work too terribly well. <laughs> and I finally, I finally have come to at least some, I mean, I'm 42, so I'm sure I've got decades still, hopefully still to go in doing this and processing this. But, <clears throat> you know, I'm at a stage now where, you know, because I started online quite young, I started in this business quite young. Yeah. It's like I've tried every other version of me that I thought would be better than me. And none of them seem to work as well as me. So I think any authenticity is just down to a comfort I have with myself finally. And I'm still wildly unhappy with myself. <laughs> so, so who knows what's to come? You know? Well, you, you, you hide it well. But uh, I, so the, the question then is, is to what extent if we want to get a bit hippie and woo woo on this, um, let's let's go down the avenue of the secret, you know, that you you bring into your life kind of like frequencies. So as you've, you know, come into this space of greater acceptance and love for yourself, has that been mirrored by the partner you've brought into your life or, was, you know, has manifested into your life? And what's that, what's well, that dynamic I, been like? My partner, my partner Kat and I were friends for many, many years before we got together. So we've seen each other through each other's exes and terrible girlfriends and boyfriends that we chose and things like that. And we, we were friends through a lot of that. But there was a, a long time where we toyed with, played with the idea of it right. when we were with other people and we would, in a roundabout way, sort of talk about and, and test the waters and things like that. I do remember distinctly a time when I thought, I, I'm not good enough for her. Mm. Like I recall that day vividly and just thinking, I need to... I think I was a boy up until I was about 37. And I think I only really transitioned to being a man, as I understand that to me, for me, when I was about 37, 38. Mm. And so there was a period where I thought, you know, because Kat and I talk about this all the time, and we sometimes lament that we didn't get together earlier. And, um, you know, we have children, both of us, we don't have children together, but we have children with separate partners. Mm. So we're a lovely, big, happy family together with five kids between us and all that. And uh, so we lament, you know, we lament that, you know, we didn't get together earlier because I've known her since 2010, 2011. Um, but I don't think I'm glad she gets to see and I'm still wildly imperfect. I'm glad she gets this James and had, didn't have to go through the other James. Mm. So that's fascinating. Um, because one of the other hallmarks of, of kind of stepping into sovereignty is very often some kind of initiation from, and this is the work I do in, in, in my volunteer work with a charity called A Band of Brothers. We mentor young men, kind of aged 18 to 25, and we support them to, through a rites of passage, <coughs> through, through an initiation, to be welcomed into their communities as men. Um, and I heard you say, you know, you felt like you were a boy until you were 37. So it was, yeah. what, what and if it was the case was there some kind of initiation what was what what was that yeah, dynamic pain. that a lot yes if, if you will <laughs> i'd love to, i'd love to i'd love to kind I of i love uh, what you just said by the way i love what you just said because the work you're doing with rights of passage is so important that's so important and it's another thing that we have to stick it to the industrial revolution about mm. because those rights i think that's when the rights of passage became going for a drink and getting pissed yes. and stuff like that it's yeah. like there was not the space anymore there wasn't the space anymore because generally speaking for most people when you go back 250 300 years for most people um 
you're working all day. There was you're out of touch with the seasons. You're out of touch with uh, of, of cycles and things coming into fruition and things growing. It stopped being uh, cycles and growth. It started being off and on. Mm. Ironically, what we now call digital, which is ones and zeros, off and on, yes, no, is is really a hallmark more of the industrial age than of the digital age. And this is why it can be quite confusing for people when they think. Well, digital's not good, is it? Because it's just like black and white, but it's not. But the industrial age was, you know, it was very, mm. all our cycles went out the window. Yeah. It was like yeah. from morning, from, from dawn till dusk, you worked. And so all of these things, all of these natural rights, which I don't know much about, quite honestly, but I do know that the industrial revolution, again, had a huge part to play yeah. in, in, in severing that, you know? Mm. Um, and I think rites of passage, yeah, for me, it was a large amount of pain. I, I left the, I chose to leave my, my children's mother in 2011, um, which was eight years ago. So I was 34. Yeah. And then what happened was three years of pain that I went through in coming to terms with the implications of not living with my children anymore, coming to terms with the implications of somebody I'd spent six years of my life with doing her own damn thing and quite right that she would, right? But I was outraged by some of the choices she made mm. and how dare she and mm. all these kind of, I got into this blame and, you know, they're a terrible person. I'm, I'm, I'm the one who's been wounded and hurt mm. here. And it, and it, it accumulated. It was so much bullshit that I was drowning in my own, that I was drowning in, that it kind of, and this was all while I was still running the business I'm running to this very day. I realized how much I wasn't owning. You know, I realized mm. how little responsibility I was willing to take for any of it. And that changed and it changed gradually, but it changed through a huge accumulation of pain and sickness and, and illness and overindulgence and uh, drinking and, and nearly killing myself mm. and treating people poorly, um, but disguising it as just being cool and, Hey, this is me now. Like I do whatever I want kind of stuff. And it all kind of came to a, a period. I'd love to say that it was an instant thing, but it wasn't an instant. It wasn't like a Satori moment. It was a very much a, a slow burn thing. But I recognized after that, that I had an ounce, maybe just a tiny flickering of wisdom. Hmm. And I have tried to cultivate that flame of wisdom, like as tiny as it probably still is. I've tried to treat it so sacredly and just be like oh like here this this tiny flame that i have that says this is what a man is and but like even to this day i battle with it i think we all do because again it's it's easier to be a child a child is entitled my children are entitled to certain things they are entitled to not have to ask for things they are entitled to basic care they are entitled to i think love i think they are entitled to these things yeah. but again because there's no initiation out of that there's no mm -hmm. time where you say you're no longer entitled to these things yeah. um we we have a hard job and so there was me this screaming baby man going love me give me put up with me and uh that snapped you know over a long period of mm. time and I realized, no, none of it is. And it still comes out. You know, it still comes out. You know, it will still rear its ugly head because 
it works. <laughs> <laughs> this is the dangerous thing about it. Is it works to scream and yell to a certain extent. Yeah. But this is the thing when you choose when you choose to spend your life with a, a more awakened, in my case, woman, um, or partner, whoever you're spending your time with. You know, when you choose somebody who is also on that journey to trying to take responsibility for their lives, it's harder to hide in the child. That's why yes. I find it's harder. Yes. I still will do it. I'll still rant and rave about things as if like something's been done to me. And then I'll go, what did I just do there? Sorry, forget that last 30 seconds of me ranting like a baby, you know. But um, yeah, I think that's the journey for me. I think rites of passage work, mm. you know, hearing what you're doing there. It's so, so important for it. Beautiful. I, I really appreciate you sharing that because it's uh, you, you, like without knowing all of the different elements that I consider to be at the heart of sovereignty, you just you nailed so many of them. It's it is you know very often an initiation of of, of owning our pain and our part in it, and so uh, you know and and moving beyond that, <laughs> like man baby, I love that description. Um, which is uh, I might have to borrow that one into kind of you know an adult maturity of you know. I, I take responsibility for my life and for my how I feel. Um, yeah. And so really, and I'd kind of had this sense of some of the things you'd shared about your your past and seeing you now, I'd like, I feel like there's been some, you know, you, you've been initiated, you've been through the fire. And yeah. so, you know, that was my hunch. And I'm really, really grateful to hear you share, you know, what is a vulnerable story. I really, really appreciate that because it's been my own experience as well um, to go through the pain and yeah really really come out the other side well it's service right it sounds like that's what you're doing is you're helping young men to go through that and it's like you know i think that's so worthy if if my sorry sordid and very brief story helps somebody else go yeah where am i you know because we often say oh you're acting like a child but what does that really mean and i re i i remember the day at land and i was like it's entitlement mm. it's entitlement and not not owning like if my kids, if I leave my kid, and my, my kids have gotten older now. My son's 11, my daughter's 14. So, but even a couple of years ago, if I left them, of course they couldn't feed themselves. Yeah. You know, of course they couldn't prepare a meal for themselves. And it's like they come with expectations. They come with a sense of entitlement, which, and again, it's confusing because there's no rites of passage. We're supposed to figure out the day when things change. We're supposed to, and that's why a rite of passage is so important because you are saying, Here's a boundary you're mm. about to cross over yeah, into, here's a into new territory. Yeah, yeah. And you know, in this new territory, you don't expect people to do things. You don't, you aren't entitled to anything. Literally, you aren't entitled to anything except to take up the space you do on this planet, you know? And I think that's really important to help you grasp, you know, life in the real world. You know? mm. Amazing. So that's, that is a wonderful, wonderful place to, 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 to close. And I honestly could just keep, keep chatting because there's for me there's, there's so many ways that 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 feeds into essentially all we've been talking about it there's, there's been this really beautiful through line in all of it and uh so i really i really appreciate your openness uh, in sharing and you know we didn't even get onto every 10 day and the fact that you've had the number 32 podcast in all of the entire world accidentally because you were finding ways to be an amazing parent um so if you yeah. were up for it i would love to have a, a part two um at some point to, to. to to kind of uh, dig to. into that as well because um you know both you and i are now on the journey of of having that you know we are parents some of the time and we are also our kids are with uh, you know them their other their mom some of the other time and there's 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 a real 
uh, it feels like that's happening a lot in the world at the moment. I'm, you know, I I'm, I'm getting calls from men just randomly because I've been a bit more active on social media talking about this stuff. I'm getting calls from men in tears, like who they've seen how I've navigated the transition that I went through, and you know, they're like, "Oh, you feel like the person to speak to." And so, um, yeah. I'd love to dig into how you've really approached parenting and tried to, you know, mm. how. I wonder how has digital maturity informed your parenting styles? That's a fascinating question for for another time. <laughs> I'll uh, think about that. So, James, thank you so much. Um, where can Bless people you, find you know? Where can people find more, more of your stuff? Uh, how can they you know? How can they you know receive the benefits of your sovereign wisdom that has been so well well earned? Yeah, well, thank you. I think the easiest thing for anybody to do would be to go to www.lazy.coach, and at the top of the page, it's super simple. It's ten questions. It takes two minutes to do. But it will introduce you to the idea of how bogged down you might be by industrial age thinking. It's usually where I point people first because it can just open your eyes to some ideas that mm. can help you in the in this kind of new age that we're we're coming into. Fantastic. So, so yeah, go to www.lazy.coach, not .com, .coach. I, lo I love these little specific, like, custom domain names now. Uh, I'm really, really enjoying that. Um, so good. Yeah. Lazy.coach, people. And, uh, yeah, find out just how conditioned by industrial age thinking you are. And uh, if you need to change, you have a, a mature oak in the digital age uh, <laughs> who is ready and willing to help. So, uh, James, thank you so much, brother. And, uh, you know, take thank care. Thank you. I've loved every second of it. Thank you. Bless you. Awesome. Lots of love.